Grace and peace to you friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge Season 1 Episode 60. That's right, 60 episodes. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. I appreciate all of you. I appreciate my regular listeners and my new listeners. And if you are a new listener, you may be scratching your head wondering, what is an encyclopedia challenge? Do I have to read an encyclopedia? I don't even own an encyclopedia. What's going on here? Well, don't fret. You don't have to own an encyclopedia. You don't have to read the encyclopedia. All you have to do is listen uh, to me read the encyclopedia to you. All you need is a desire to learn um, or love for words. And hopefully you will learn something um, and not just laugh at my mispronounce, uh, see, yep, <laughs> and laugh at me mispronouncing words, <laughs> I was trying to say mispronunciations, um, but see, even simple words I mispronounce, so, uh, but I read from two different encyclopedias, we have a main source, which is the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and then we go Sometimes to another source, the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And if you are curious about the introductions to these encyclopedias, uh, they are uh, listed on my website. Sometimes I forget to tell you what my website is. My website is theoaktreejourneys.com. And you'll want to go to Encyclopedia Challenge. And there you will see... Of some videos and a list of all the words we've gone over so far as well as today today's words and if you want to know how to spell any of those words um, that's a good place to go if you've missed any uh, podcasts uh, that's a good place to go to there's also a bonus section so if you're curious about the bonuses go ahead and hit that up as well but again that website is theoaktreejourneys.com and that's where um I've got all the list of my stuff. Um, but you will see, if you go to episode 59, which was last week's episode, and today is April 10th, 2022, and I hate to tell you this, but Easter's almost here. You got seven days left before Easter arrives, and I'll admit, I'm not ready. But uh, last week's episode, episode 59... Uh, had an error that I didn't catch until I, after I posted everything, I was like, oh, wait. So the error is number eight is Ulster and number nine is Alsted, Johann Heinrich. Um, that was my mistake. I spelled Ulster incorrectly. So I put Alsted, Johann Heinrich in the wrong spot. So I didn't catch that. Uh, during the podcast, whenever I was like, oh, I misspelled that. Um, but I had it spelled A-L-S-S-T-E-R, which would have made Alstead, comma, Johann Heinrich correct. <laughs> but because I corrected Ulster, um, it should be flip-flopped. Uh, but that's okay. That's the way it's recorded. That's the way I've got it. Um, I just, I did want to tell you that that was my error. That was not the encyclopedia's error this time. Um, and my regular listeners, you know that the 1909 has several errors in it um, that we catch every now and then. Sometimes I don't catch until much later. And then I'm like, wait a minute, what did I just read? <laughs> what was that? So anyway, just wanted to alert you and apologize for that mistake there. And uh, before we get into our list of words for this week, I just want to remind you of the quote of the month. Um, if you remember from last week, this quote got me through a difficult moment during my hike at the Devil's Bathtub. Um, but it's by Sidney Smith, who was an English cleric and journalist. He lived from 1771 to 1845. And hopefully this quote will help you as well. The fact is that in order to do anything in this world worth doing, we must not stand shivering on the bank, thinking of the cold and the danger but jump in and scramble through as well as we can. So that is our quote of the month by Sidney Smith. Now, last week we ended with Altenstein. So this week we have Alter. And I know last week we had Alter as well, but that was A-L-T-A-R. This week it's A-L-T-E-R. So we have Alter, Alteration, 
alteratives, not alternatives, but alteratives, altercate and alternate. So number one is alter, and that is from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So alter is a verb, and it means to change, to vary, to make different in some way, altering, altered, alterable, capable of being changed, that may be varied, alterably, alterableness, alterability, the capacity for being changed, alteration, noun, a varying in some way, a change, alterative, having the power to change or alter, noun, a medicine supposed to have the power of producing changes in the constitution or habit of body. Okay, so that was number one. So let's go to number two, which is alteration, and that is from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Alteration, such a change in a written instrument or property interest as if effective would result in a different instrument or interest from the original. The alteration of a written instrument is effected by any material change in its language or character, such as adding terms, erasing or interlining or removing a seal from a deed. The law distinguishes in cases according as the alteration is made by a party or by a stranger. So just don't do it. <laughs> And number three, alteratives. And for that, we go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So number three is alteratives. In medicine, remedies that have the power of changing the state of nutrition of the body without causing changes in the constitution of the solids or fluids. The term is generally applied, however, to medicines which in full doses are irritant, but which almost imperceptibly alter disordered actions or secretions by acting specially on certain glands or upon absorption in general when they are given in comparatively small doses through a considerable time. For example, mercury is an irritant in some of its pre preparations, but when it is given in small doses at intervals for some time, it, quote, produces alteration in disordered actions so as to cause an improvement in the nutrient and digestive functions the dis disappearance of eruptions and the removal of the thickening of the skin or of other tissues, end quote, by Royal. That is actually incorrect. Remember, this is from 1909. Um, do not follow anything in medicine from this or in law. Uh, medicine or law, because things do change. And, and uh, mercury is bad, 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 bad. Even the smallest dose can harm your brain. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but it's interesting um, to see what people once believed. So, so it's, it's really interesting. It's not cool, but it's interesting. Okay, so let's move on. Iodine, also an irritant in concentrated doses, is most useful when given in small doses in effecting the redu reduction of enlarged glands. The preparations of gold are likewise stimulants of the absorbance and are used in cases of scrofula. Don't know what that is, but I'm sure we will find out later. Some preparations of arsenic are powerful alteratives. Please don't take arsenic um, in cases of skin disease. So also are the decoctions of sarsaparilla. Oh, sarsaparilla tastes pretty good. And the like, which when taken in large quantities of water, must operate partly by their diluting and solvent properties and partly by the stimulant effect of the active principles of the several ingredients in these preparations. Again, before we move on uh, to number four, please do not take the advice of this 1909 encyclopedia and start taking any of those. I know you guys are smart. You're not going to do it, but if there are any kids or, or anything around listening, don't, don't do it. Okay, so number four, altercate, verb, to contend in words, to wrangle, altercating, altercated, altercation, noun, a contention in words, a wrangling, synonym of altercation, quarrel, difference, dispute, affray, or fray, broil, feud, contest, wrangle. Okay. And number five, alternate. So alternate is a verb to do by turns, to happen by turns, to change in succession, adjective that succeeds or follows by turns, first on one side, then on another, Alternating, alternated, alternatingly, alternate, 
In geology, in alternating layers, alternation, noun, the act of doing by turns, the act of taking one and leaving one in succession. Alternative, offering a choice of two things, noun of two things, and offer to take the one and leave the other, often used but incorrectly of more than two. Alternatively, alternativeness, alternate angles in geometry, two similar angles not adjacent, but on opposite sides of an intersecting line, Alternate generation, a mode of reproduction among the lowest animal types in which the young resemble not the parent, but the grandparent. See generations, comma, alternation of. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our second set of words are alternate, again, <laughs> alternating current, alternator, Alt Geld, comma, John Peter, and Althea. So let's start with number six, which is alternate. And all it says is in botany, sea leaves. That's it. <laughs> so pretty simple. Uh, the word is actually longer than the definition or, or the entry there. Okay, and number seven, alternating current. All it says is sea electricity, principles of. So we have to see the principles of electricity, which we will when we get to the E's. And number eight, alternator, a dynamo for producing alternating currents of electricity. And number nine, Altgeld, John Peter, and we are going to read from both um, encyclopedias for this one. So let me just make sure I'm on the right page. So, Altgeld, comma, John Peter, or John Peter Altgeld. He was an American politician born Germany, 1847, in December, died in 1902 on March 12th. He was brought to Mansfield, Ohio in infancy. He received a public school education, served in the Civil War as a private in the Union Army from 1864 to 1865, taught school in Missouri, became a lawyer there and county attorney of Andrew County in 1874, Removing to Chicago in 1875, he became prominent in the D Democratic Party. An unsuccessful candidate for Congress in 1884, he was judge of the Chicago Superior Court from 1886 to 1891. Elected governor in 1892, one of his first official acts was to pardon three anarchists, imprisoned since 1887, two for life and one for 15 years, for complicity complicity in bomb throwing which killed seven policemen in Chicago in 1886 on May 4th see anarchism haymarket massacre it should be said that many leading united states citizens had petitioned for their release on the ground of insufficient evidence an assumption which judge gary had vigorously repealed altgeld was governor until 1897 he was a prominent champion of free silver and an active supporter of bryan for the presidency in 1896 and 1900, and was defeated as independent candidate for mayor in 1899. He was an able speaker, an efficient advocate of prison reform, and appears to have been moved chiefly by sympathy with the working class. He wrote Our Penal Machinery and Its Victims, Live Questions, etc. Okay, so that was from the Encyclopedia uh, I'm sorry, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So let's go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 to see if they have anything else to add. So John Peter Altgeld, an American politician born Nieder Selters, Nassau, Germany, December 30th, 1847. So already we have more information on his birth. Died Juliet, Illinois, March 12th, 1902. Brought to Mansfield, Ohio in infancy, he received little formal education. After serving as a private in, in the Union Army from 1864 to 1865, he taught school in Missouri, became a lawyer there, and in 1874, state's attorney of Andrew County. Removing to Chicago in 1875, he became prominent in the Democratic Party. An unsuccessful candidate for Congress in 1884, he was judge of the Superior Court of Cook County, from 1886 to 1891, retiring as its chief justice. Elected governor of Illinois in 1892 by farm and labor votes, he embarked on a program of reform, which included the improvement of prison conditions, 
educational progress, and the regulation of working conditions in factories. He appointed the well-known social worker Florence Kelly State Factory Inspector. Believing that the anarchists convicted of conspiracy in the Haymarket Square riot of 1886 had not had a fair trial, he pardoned the three survivors in 1893. His action and his protest to President Grover Cleveland on the use of federal troops in the Pullman strike in 1894 aroused considerable opposition among conservative elements, and he was not re-elected in 1896. Altgeld was a champion of free silver and an active supporter of William Jennings Bryan for the presidency in 1896 and 1900. He was defeated as an independent candidate for mayor of Chicago in 1899. His published works include Our Penal Machinery and Its Victims in 1884, Live Questions in 1890. So we did get a little more information about him there, and I felt like that was better written. Um, So anyone having to do a report on him, definitely the 1956 version was better. And number 10, Althea. So let's go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Althea, and simply says, see marshmallows and hollyhock. That's all it says. It actually says the same thing in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So, so you don't get any new information in the 1956 one there either. Uh, but that is Althea. And before we go to break, I just wanted to tell you about my 5K run. So last Monday, um, I didn't have my puppy with me. I usually take her on my runs and walks, uh, but I didn't have her this time. So I was like, I want to see if I can do a 5K. Well, first I was like, I'll I'll just do a mile or two and then I'll I'll go home. And I was like, no, I want to see if I can do a 5K. I hadn't done a 5K since I snapped my tendon. So I did it. I did a 5K. I'm so proud of myself. Um, But there were a couple of incidents. Uh, One, I got bit by a dog. Um, it wasn't bad. It, it, it was not a bad bite. In fact, I didn't even really feel teeth. In this case, the dog's growl and bark were worse than its bite. Um, no joke. Uh, but the leash was super, super long, and I had to keep running from it. I had to keep had to run all the way out to the parking lot, and its leash still came out to the parking lot. And the owner never once apologized. He's like, oh, I didn't see you there. Like, this is a public track, but okay. Um, that's pretty much all he said um, as his dog was, like, scrambling after me. Um, but the second incident with the dog wasn't too bad. It was actually a, a very friendly incident. Um, this man wanted me to stop and pet his dog, which if you run, you know you shouldn't stop. Well... I was nice. I was in a really good mood Monday, and I was just saying hi to everybody, like, hey, how's it going? So I went ahead and stopped and petted his dog, but let me tell you, getting back, you know, from, I had a really great pace going, really great pace, and then that stop, even for just a few seconds, just knocked me out. And I was so glad I was almost done with that 5K because it it was not fun after that trying to get back to where I was. Um, it was a struggle, but the dog was nice. That dog was nice anyway. Um, but I just wanted to tell you about that. I, I did do a 5K and then the two stories about the dogs. I've got more stories, but I won't bore you with those. Let's go ahead and go to break. Welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Althorpe, Lord, Although, Althusius, Johans, Altimeter, and Altiscope. So number 11, Althorpe, Lord, or Lord Althorpe. And I just noticed I lost my spot. Okay, here we go. All it says is C. Spencer, John Charles Earl. So we have to wait until we get to the S's, but we'll find out who Lord all Thorpe is in the S's. And although is a conjunction, notwithstanding though. And number 13, Althusius Johans, or Johans Althusius. And for him, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And he's entry number 13. If you want to go to the website, 
theoaktreejourneys.com, uh, season one, episode 60, uh, to find out how to spell his, his name. He was a German philosopher born Deidenhausen, 1557, died in 1638. He was for many years professor of ethics and law at Herborn. He wrote the first treatise on po politics ever produced in Germany. Well, that's neat. His system claimed that social life was based on a contract expressed or implied between men. He was thus the forerunner of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Oh, that is cool. He claimed that all rights proceed from the people and was outspoken against any usurpation of those rights. He included workingmen's unions or combinations among monopolies requiring regulation. He wrote Politica Methodis Digesta in 1603, Jurisprudentia Romania Libri in 1588, Diacolici Libri Tres Totum et Universum Jus Quo Utimor Methodus Complacence in 1617, and my apologies, my German is non-existent. I know how to say no, which is nine. Nine! <laughs> I do know how to say no. <laughs> so there we go. But uh, there is Johannes Althusius. And let's go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for entries number 14 and 15. So entry number 14 is altimeter, which is a noun. An instrument for taking heights, altimetry, noun, art of measuring heights. So pretty simple, altimeter, just an instrument for taking heights. Altoscope is number 15. Altoscope, an instrument consisting of an arrangement of mirrors in a vertical framework by means of which a person is enabled to overlook an object. A parapet, for instance, intervening between himself and whatever he desires to see. The picture of the latter being reflected from a higher to a lower mirror where it is seen by the observer. Okay, and that was entry number 15. Before we get a break, I uh, just want to remind uh, anyone who's participating in Camp NaNoWriMo, keep going. You're doing great. This is the 10th day of, Nano, of the Camp NaNoWriMo. And if you missed Camp NaNoWriMo, I don't know if you can sign up this late. You might be able to, uh, but if you're interested... Uh, just go to nanorimo.org. The link is in the description of this podcast below, as well as the link to my uh, website, theoaktreejourneys.com. But if you are interested in writing um, or, or, or just trying to get started or you just love writing, um, these camps are really, really good. There's another one coming, I believe, in July. It's April and July are the Camp NanoRimos. Then the major NanoRimo is in November. That's where you write 50,000 words. Um, but just go to nanorimo.org and sign up. It's free. If you are on any site saying you have to pay, you are not on the right site. NanoRimo takes donations. Uh, it is free, um, but they do run on donations. So they will ask for donations every now and then. You don't have to give donations. That, that's not a... That's not a have-to thing, uh, but it is free. So if you are on a site saying, give us money, you're on the wrong site. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five words are altitude, alto, alt-often, altogether, and alton. Number 16 is altitude, and we are going to be strictly in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 um, until we get to entry number 26. So for 16 through 25, we are strictly in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And number 16 is altitude, noun, height as of a mountain, extension upwards, highest point, in mathematics, altitude denotes the perpendicular height of the vertex of any plane or solid body above the line or plane of its base. Thus, the altitude of a triangle is measured by a perpendicular let fall from any one of its angles upon the base or upon the base produced. Therefore, the same triangle may have different altitudes accordingly as we assume one side or the other for its base. Again, the altitude of a cone or pyramid, whether right or oblique, is me measured by a perpendicular let fall from the vertex to the plane of its base. 
Similar remarks apply to other solids. In astronomy, altitude is the height of a heavenly body above the horizon. It is measured not by linear distance, but by the angle which a line drawn from the eye to the heavenly body makes with a horizontal line, or by the arc of a vertical circle intercepted between the body and the horizon. Altitudes are taken in observatories by means of a telescope attached to a graduated circle, see circle, fixed vertically. The telescope being directed toward the body to be observed, the angle which it makes with the horizon is read on the graduated circle. The altitude thus observed must receive various corrections, the chief being for parallax and refraction, in order to get the true altitude. At C, the altitude is taken by means of a sextant, and then it has further to be corrected for the dip of the visible horizon below the true horizon. C. Horizon. The correct determination of altitudes is one of great importance in most of the problems of astronomy and navigation. Altitudes may be either true or apparent. The apparent altitude is that which is obtained immediately from observation, and the true altitude that which results from correcting the apparent altitude by making allowance for parallax, refraction, etc. The altitude of a terrestrial object is the height of its vertex above some horizontal plane assumed as a base. See longitude. An altitude and azimuth instrument consists essentially of a vertical circle with its telescope so arranged as to be capable of being turned round horizontally to any point of the compass. It thus differs from a transit circle which is fixed in the meridian. The altazimuth consists of two brass circles, one having a horizontal plane and the other a vertical plane, and a telescope is attached to the circles. When directed so that a star appears at the intersection of two crossed threads, the star's altitude in azimuth may be read from the graduations engraved on the circles. So that's altitude. Number 17, alto. Alto. The deepest or lowest. <laughs> the deepest or lowest species of musical voice in boys. Why don't you love species? There. <laughs> So, of musical voice in boys in eunuchs, and best of all, in females, where its beauty of tone gives it the preference. Its powers of expression are quite peculiar and cannot be supplied by any other kind of voice. Its tone character, or timbre, is serious, spiritual, tender, and romantic. Now, I remember, um, I've said this before, whoever wrote the musical um, definitions or entries very biased. This is the most positive one I think we've read so far, but there's been some negative ones. But they, they're very opinionated, so this is kind of cool. I'm, I'm glad they've got a high opinion of this. The low alto, in particular, has a fullness of tone combined with power in the lower range and is admir admirably, see, admirably, fitted to express religious resignation. The high alto has generally the same range of compass as the mezzo-soprano, but differs from it in the position of the cantable and it, in its character of tone. Alto voices generally consist of two registers, the lower beginning at F or G below middle C, and reaching as high as the A or B above the octave C. The higher notes up to the next F or G partake more of the character of the soprano, C alt, or voice. And our next entry, or entry number 18, is Alt-Ofen, Alt -Ofen, which is a town of Hungary, practically a suburb of Ofen or Buda, now incorporated with Pest as Budapest. And that's all they have to say about that. So number 19 is Altogether. It's Altogether, and that is Holy Entirely. And that is Holy and entirely the definition of altogether. <laughs> and number 20, so before break, we have number 20, which is Alton, and that is a city in Madison County, Illinois, on the left bank of the Mississippi River, River, four miles above its confluence with the Missouri, 24 miles north of St. Louis. It has railroad connections with Chicago and other important centers via the Chicago and Alton, Illinois and St. Louis, and St. Louis, Rock Island, and Chicago Railroads. With a fine riverfront in nearly two miles, Alton rises irregularly to the height of 225 feet in its highest portion 
It is drained by Piesa Creek, which flows from springs in the highlands above the city. It is very handsomely laid out, the business streets being parallel with the river in the lower part of the city, while fine residences have been built on the slopes of the hill and on the bluff overlooking the river. The principal trade is in the farming products of the rich surrounding country, in the coal mines in the neighborhood, and in the lime and building stone, which are plentiful beneath and about the city. Ferries connect the two sides of the river, and steamboats ply between Alton and other towns on the Mississippi. There are a number of mills, factories, glassworks, and other industries in the place. It has an excellent public school system and short-lived college. Baptist is located in Upper Alton. Two miles northeast, Monticello Seminary for Young Ladies is at Godfrey. Four miles distant on the C&ARR. Among the prominent buildings are the Haynes Memorial Public Library, Home for the Aged Women, St. Joseph's Hospital, Ursuline Convent, and 16 churches. The state penitentiary was formerly located here and was used as a military prison during the Civil War. The grounds adjoining are now preserved as a Confederate cemetery by the DOC. In 1837, Elijah P. Lovejoy, the abolitionist, was murdered here, and in 1897, a monument was erected to his memory. Population, including North and Upper Alton, about 18,000. So that was about 18,000. Okay, and... We're going to go to break. Uh, when we get back, we're actually going to talk about another Alton. <laughs> so let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your break. I drank some hot tea. And uh, before we go into our next set of five entries, just wanted to remind everyone uh, there is a coupon or a code for 20% off of my Teespring store that does expire April 24th. So, you know, Mother's Day and Father's Day are coming up. So if you want to get an item for your parent or parents, if you want your kids to get you something um, showing that you love to uh, read encyclopedias, because listening to them is is like reading them. Otherwise, we wouldn't have audible books <laughs> or audio books. Um, but yeah, so yeah, tell, tell them. Tell them, hey, I want, I want this. My Teespring store link is in the description below. So it is the-oak-tree-journeys.creator-spring.com. That's why I've got the description <laughs> um, or the um, the link <laughs> in the description below. So, um, but yeah, if you want something for Mother's Day or Father's Day, you know, get on them because it, it takes a while for you to get your stuff from Teespring. But the code is Mandy, so my name, M-A-N-D-Y, 2-0, for 20% off. Again, that does expire April 24th. Um, and that code is in the link, is in the description below as well um, with the expiration date. Okay, so just wanted to remind you about that. Um, so our next set of five entries, again, uh, as I mentioned before break, is Alton. And then we have Alton, Joseph Wilhelm Edward D., and then Alt Altona, Altuna, and Alto Relivo. So I'm sure I've mispronounced, mispronounced, <laughs> mispronounced a couple of those. So let's see if uh, the encyclopedia tells me how to pronounce them. So our second Alton is a town of Hampshire, England, near the Way, 16 miles northeast of Winchester. The church was erected in reign of Henry VII and is the perpendicular style. Bombazines were formerly manufactured here. Good hops are grown in the neighborhood and there are large breweries in the town and the ale of which is much esteemed. Population about 5,000. And we have Alton, Joseph Wilhelm Edward D. or Joseph Wilhelm Edward D. Alton. He lived from 1772 to 1840. He was born in Aquila. He was professor of archaeology and the history of art at Bonn. And I don't know if that's... It just says B-O-N-N, so I don't know if it's short for something or if it's just simply Bonn. In early years, his attention was directed to natural history, especially that of the horse, on which he published a splendid illustrated work called Natural Nature Gistich des Gefordes Bonn. Okay, so Bonn is not... Uh, 
short for anything, so Bonn 1810, completed in 1817. In concert with his friend Pendier, he projected an extensive work on comparative osteology, of which the first division of published at Bonn from 1821 to 1828. His etchings of animals, etc., are highly esteemed. Albert, the late prince consort of Queen Victoria, was a pupil of Alton in the history of art. Well, that's pretty cool. And number 23 is Altona, Altona, no, Altona, Altona, okay, so Altona, largest and richest city in the Prussian province of Slevig-Holstein on the Elbe, so near Hamburg that the two cities are divided by only the state boundaries. It lies higher than Hamburg and is much healthier, but is without the numerous canals necessary for the transport of goods with which Hamburg is well provided. Commercially, it forms one city with Hamburg. Its trade extends to England, France, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Indies. In 1905, over 500 seagoing vessels entered the port. There are many important industrial establishments in Altana. Tobacco is largely manufactured. One factory working up 600,000 pounds yearly, and again, that's the early 1900s, it is a free port and enjoys many privileges in respect of trade and also of civil freedom. All sects are allowed free exercise of their religion. Well, that's good. The city is connected by a railway with Kiel, Rendsburg, and Uckstadt. The observatory is a private institution which gained a great reputation under the direction of Schumacher, who died in 1851. The rise of Altona to its present importance has been recent and rapid for a continental town. The population in 1891 was 143,249, but in 1900, it was 161,501. Okay. And number 24 is Altona, Altona, a city in Blair County, Pennsylvania, on the Pennsylvania Railroad, 118 miles east of Pittsburgh, it has an elevation of 1,182 feet above the sea, situated in the midst of a most picturesque mountain region at the eastern base of the Algony Mountains. For many years, Altoona has, regarded, has been regarded as the most typical of American railroad towns, for here are located the immense repair shops of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and over 10,000 workmen are engaged in manufacturing and repairing locomotives, passenger coaches, and freight cars. There are other large and important manufactories of machinery, agricultural implements, coal mining machinery, etc. It is also the business center of a considerable agricultural region. The city contains a public library building, high school, several hospitals, and numerous churches and private schools. The famous Horseshoe Bend on the line of the Pennsylvania Railroad is located near the city, and Lake Mont Park is a well-known pleasure ground within the city limits. The municipal government is vested in a mayor, city council, and subordinate administrative officials who are elected annually. The city owns the waterworks plant, which was acquired in 1872 at a cost of $680,000 and upon which $20,000 is expended annually. Municipal expenses aggregate $250,000 yearly of which amount nearly $100,000 is expended for schools. The city was founded in 1850 by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. It was first incorporated as a borough in 1854 and chartered as a city in 1868. During the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, Altoona was the center of the disturbed section and troops were ordered out to protect railroad property. It is a growing, thriving city. I wonder if it still is. If you know, let me know. You can email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact and let me know if it is. I could look it up, but rather you tell me. <laughs> there are three daily and numerous weekly newspapers. Population estimated in 1905, 43,000. And number 25. Now, number 25 is rather lengthy. This is the longest entry we, we have this week, as, as far as I can remember. Um, it's about a, a total of two pages. So, alto relievo, so alto relievo, term used in sculpture 
to designate that mode of representing objects by which they are made to project strongly and boldly from the background without being entirely detached. In alto relievo, some portions of the figures usually stand quite free, and in this respect it differs from basso relievo, Italian basso low or bas relief or low relief, and from the intermediate kind of relief known as mezzo relievo, in which the figures are fully rounded, but where there are no detached portions. In order to be in high relief, objects ought actually to project somewhat more than half their thickness, no conventional means being employed in this style to give them apparent prominence. In bas relief, on the other hand, the figures are usually flattened, but means are adopted to prevent the projection from appearing to the eye to be less than half. Because if an object be seen to project less than half, an example to be more than half buried in the background, it will be obvious that its true outline or profile cannot be represented. This rule that in all reliefs there shall be either a real or an apparent projection of at least half the thickness of round objects was strictly observed in the best period of Greek art, but has been often neglected in the execution of reliefs in later times, and hence some attempts at foreshortening and perspective have partially failed. Relief forms as an intermediate stage between plastic art and painting, the mode of representation being borrowed from the former, while the mode of arrangement is to some extent from the latter. The plastic principle occupies the most prominent place in the simple and tranquil reliefs of the earlier art of Greece, whereas the pictorial principle preponderates in the crowded and often excited scenes represented in the latter in the later Roman reliefs. In reliefs produced in modern times, the one element or the other has prevailed according as the one model or the other has been followed. The works recovered from the ruins of Persepolis, Nineveh, and Babylon still attest the extensive employment of relief in Persian and Assyrian art. Of the latter, which usually belongs to the class of mezzo-relievo, some of the finest specimens in existence are now to be seen in the British Museum. Though never exhibiting the life and freedom of classical or modern European art, the elaborately executed and majestic reliefs of these semi-oriental nations are greatly in advance, not only of the whimsical distortions of nature exhibited by the Hindu, but of the inanimate and motionless representations of the Egyptians. The earliest Greek reliefs possessed a hard and severe character, somewhat approaching to the art of those earlier nations of which we have just spoken, and were very slightly raised. Of this, an instance is in the two lions over the gate at Messina, probably the oldest Greek relief in existence. It was Phidias who gave, the, gave to relief its true character and finally brought it to a degree of perfection which it has never since attained. The alti relievi, which adorned the metopes of the Parthenon at Athens and the temple of Apollo at Phagelia in Arcadia, now preserved in the British Museum, are still not only unsurpassed but unapproachable in, in examples of the style. In none of these do we see any attempt at perspective, and even foreshortening, for the most part, is avoided. Under the Romans, sculpture was employed to an enormous extent in the decoration of tombs and sarcophagi, whole streets of such monuments being constructed as, for example, on the Appian Way. The result of the demand thus created was that sculpture became a manufacture rather than an art, and attempts were made to supply by technical execution and mere mass what had been lost in thought and spirit. Relief was applied often by Greek artists resident in Italy to purposes for which the Greeks in their own land in their better times had rightly deemed it unsuited. Behind figures standing nearly free, a second rank was introduced, and those numerous examples of a false style, still to be found in every gallery in Europe, were produced, the imitation of which afterwards led to such a lavish expenditure of artistic talent in Italy. The attempt which the Romans had made to invade the province of painting by means of sculpture was carried still further by the Florentine artists of the 16th and 17th century. Not only were several rows of figures represented in perspective, but even landscape was introduced with a success, which in the hands of such artists as Ghiberti was positively marvelous. If the highest perfection in the true plastic style of relief was attained by Phidias in the metopes of the Parthenon at Athens, a corresponding merit 
may be claimed as regards the degenerate pictorial style by Ghiberti and the celebrated bronze doors of the baptistry of San Giovanni at Florence. Even Canavan's reliefs partook too far too great an extent of the character of paintings in stone, and to Flaxman, and above all to Thorwaldsen, must be assigned the merit of restoring this style of art to its genuine and original principles. It is to be remembered in studying the reliefs of classical times that studiously, as the Greeks avoided a pictorial conception of their subject, they did not eschew the use of color where it could be employed to heighten the effect of their reliefs. There is reason to believe that in many excellent examples the background was painted blue and that the hems of the garments of the figures and the like were often colored or gilded. So there we go, that's Alto Relievo. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our last set of five entries are Alt Randstadt, Altresses, Altringham, Altruism, and Altruism. So for numbers 26 and 27, we are going to be in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So let's start with number 26, which is Altrinchet, which is a village in Germany situated in Saxony-Anhalt, 15 miles west of Leipzig. It gave its name to two treaties. The first, Treaty of 1706, by which Augustus II, Elector of Saxony and King of Poland, was forced to renounce the Polish crown to Stanislaus I, or I'm sorry, Stanislaus I, and it's Lachinsky, I want to say. It's really, really long. Um, I know I'm mispronouncing that. My apologies. Um, after the defeat of Charles at the Battle of Poltava in 1709, Augustus declared the treaty null and void. Oh, that's not, that's not good. So number two, Treaty of 1707, by which Emperor Joseph I guaranteed to Charles XII religious toleration for the Protestants of Cilicia. So that's good. Okay, and number 27, Altresses. Are birds hatched from the egg before they have acquired feathers or the ability to care for themselves? This class includes all except sea and game birds, in the case of which incubation is long. So that those are numbers 26 and 27. So for 28, 29, and 30, we're going to go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So number 28 is Altringham. Market town of Cheshire, England, on Bowden Downs, eight miles southwest from Manchester, on the Cheshire Midland Railway, and near the Duke of Bridgewater's Canal, which has contributed greatly to its prosperity. It is an attractive and healthful town. Population in 1901 was 16,800. 16,800 in 1901. Okay. And number 29 is altruism which is a noun, the state of being regardful in the interests and good of others, the carrying out the principles of the golden rule, the opposite of egoism, benevolence, altruistic, regardful of the interests and good of others, the opposite of ego, egoistic, beneficent, and benevolent. Okay, altruism, number 30. So our last entry of this week is altruism again. So this time it's in philosophy. In ethics, the theory which holds that the aim of moral conduct is the good of others. Idealistic ethical theories have generally been able, without difficulty, to take a, such a position as this. Hedonism, on the other hand, insofar as it makes pleasure the end, is confronted with the difficulty of making that which pleases the individual coincide with that which is pleasing to and advantageous for society as a whole. That is to say, the pleasure of the individual oftentimes conflicts with the pleasures of others. Evolutionary ethics, which may be regarded as a form of hedonism, has also had to meet the same problem. Theories of this variety commonly attempt to show that in the last an analysis, analysis, there could be no radical antagonism between those things which will render the most enduring and satisfying pleasures 
to the individual and those which bring a similar sort of pleasure to others. Okay, so that is our 30th entry for this week. And just a few reminders before you go. Um, 20% off of my Teespring store, uh, Mandy20, um, is the code you will use. It expires April 24th, and all the information you need is in the podcast description below. Um, and for those of you participating in Camp NaNoWriMo, awesome. Keep it up. You're doing great. And don't forget, Easter, April 17th. I have not decided if there's going to be a bonus. I may not make a bonus um, since I still haven't made <laughs> the Easter baskets for church. Um, but uh, if I do have a bonus, I will, um, I'll post it. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I will. I, I don't think I'll have time because it just every year it just seems to creep up on me. <laughs> you may be the same way. You might not be. You may be ready months in advance. Um, but I am never ready for Easter, so <laughs> I've got to get ready. Uh, so those are just, just a few reminders, and if you want to write to me, my email address is mandyoaks at protonmail.com, or you can go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, and just click contact, and uh, just say hi, or if you've got a word that you don't like or a word that you do like, let me know what that word is, and let me know why you like it or dislike it, and maybe I'll make a bonus off of that word. Or it can, it can be more than one word as well. So with that, uh, before we... Oh, and before we go, uh, one more time with Sydney Smith, our quote of the month. The fact is that in order to do anything in this world worth doing, we must not stand shivering on the bank, thinking of the cold and the danger, but jump in and scramble through as well as we can. And with that, I hope you have a blessed week, and I bid you adieu.